Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Well, if you don't know... Welcome to Food for Thought. A Woo! Woo! Um, it is a podcast gab fest. We're in a multiracial mix of queer writers gather around the table to talk about sex, mm. identity, uh. culture, Woo! what we like to read, mm. and who we like, like to it. read. Mm. Food for Thought, come get your hands stuck in our cookie jars. <laughs> Woo! Yeah, we've been talking about fisting all oh, week. Wow. Literally all week. You people will uh, not stop writing stories about fisting. It's just... If the straight men have no, no, learned one poets. thing... It is the poets that write about fisting. That's true. Much. That's true. Um, I'm Tommy Teeps Pico. I'm an indigenous American poet, editor. Um, I, as I've said before, can suck the color out of a marble. Every and, time. And I'm really proud of it. I finished my fourth book this week. <laughs> Hi, I'm Joseph Osmondson, scientist, nonfiction writer, total top, (laughs) and that always gets a laugh. And for the first time in five years, I have a hickey right now, and and it's from a conference bay, and the hickey is going to help me win a National Book Award. I'm Fran. <laughs> I never, why do I always follow you? Like, what is the fucking, I'm Fran, I'm a writer, editor, and where is your album, Carly Rae Jepsen? <laughs> the summer is halfway over. I am waiting for your bop, okay? Where is it? I'm waiting, and I don't mean to be dramatic, but if you release a song, Carly Rae Jepsen, I will personally pay you $1 million. <laughs> like, I will do it. Um, okay. Hi, everyone. I am Dennis Norris II. <laughs> Thank you for that. And, okay, I'm going to be real with you. I'm a reader and a writer and a former figure skater. And, okay, the truth is, I'm not supposed to be in heels right now because I was hit by a car two months ago. For real. And the injuries are real. But also, I'm a pastor's kid or PK. So all I do is show out when I'm in a church, okay? If we burst into flames on this stage, the show will go on. <laughs> uh, well, uh, since you, I mean, I would love to hear you tell us what we got on the menu this week, Dennis. Yes, sweethearts. On tonight's menu, we're serving a novel or old thought classic, your choice. We're going to take questions and offer sage and healing crystal advice to our esteemed murder of thoughts. For our main segment, we're going to tackle Scar Joe and remind you all that all of us are kind, smart, and important. (laughs) And for desserts... We're going to introduce y'all to the new goddess of love, Sean Day. (laughs) 
Are you ready? Yes, yes, We're yes. We're so ready. It's time for our uproarious appetizer segment, Amuse Boosh. And to amuse our booshes this week, Joe has a game for us. Hi, everybody. So for today's game, I'm going to try to stump a room full of writers about one of our greatest living poets. And it's actually special because she was here two years ago when we were all here and when we met. Everyone who follows me on social knows that I'm obsessed with Sharon Old. One of the things I love about her is how she writes about sex and the body without holding back. Pleasure and funk, desire and disgust sit on the page in equal measure. So, in this game, I've picked some of the sexiest Sharon Olds lines and some favorite sex descriptions from cheesy and bad romantic novels. And you all get to guess who is who. Are we ready? I was born ready for this. It's, uh, <clears throat> also, reading these is my favorite thing in the world. Every point in my body sparked with desire until I hit the golden spot. I think Teeps. Um, I think that's Sharon Olds. Okay, Fran. I think you wrote that, Joe. <laughs> um, no, on not, Twitter? Not enough crying. Not enough crying. Um, I'm going to go with romance novel solely for the phrase golden so spot. I answer the question by reading the excerpt. Five, four, he said in my ear. Three, <laughs> two, his voice taunted me. Every point in my body sparked with desire until I hit the golden spot. Then my back arched, my mouth opened, and I lost all control of my senses. One, I screamed and clapped, uh, collapsed against him. Happy New Year, Lucy. <laughs> so it is Sharon Old. <laughs> that could also be from my memoir. And we're going to get the audience in on this as well. You were something between an electric current and a wave. Oh. Sharon. I think it's Sharon. I think Sharon. You were something between an electric current and a wave in gray and white brain flesh. Oh, thought. You were inside me, but it didn't seem so. <laughs> Thought spelled T-H-O-U-G-H-T. Okay. Incorrect spelling, but Sharon we'll let Olds. it fly, Sharon. <laughs> oh, these are so good. The cock in our mouth. Ah, the cock in our mouth. Like explorers who discover a lost city, we went nuts with joy. I, it, it, I truly don't know. <laughs> Listen. Old white women will write about some cock. It's Sharon Olds. <laughs> I promise you, it is Sharon Olds. Bet their life I, on it. Bet their life on it. I'm going to go with D on this one. Y'all? Wow. It goes on from there. Undressed the men. It, this could be a romance novel, though. <laughs> Undressed the men slowly and carefully as if uncovering buried artifacts that proved our theory of the lost culture. Mm. It, took it a is turn. steamy. <laughs> Sweat slick bodies sliding together. Tommy? Wait, ask, let's ask them. Uh, audience. Doing? Pretty sure, pretty sure about yourself. So the audience okay. says romance. The sudden, delicious sense that Jonathan was hers for now. <laughs> Entirely and completely hers. Fills her with as much force and speed as his hard cock. Woo! As his thrusts 
cats gain a steady tempo. She brings her hands to his pecs, his nipples, down his abs, clamping her legs around his waist, driving further into her until their sweat-slick bodies are sliding together, and he's whispering in her ear, I never knew you were such a dirty girl, Emily. <laughs> Emily Blaine. Honestly, Joe, you give your best readings when you're reading romance novels. I don't read my work for shit. <laughs> That's your best reading. It's my new career. I don't care what you say. I, I still think you wrote that. <laughs> um, I gave my mouth and throat over to almost the whole thing. I remember my, relaxing as if reminding myself that no harm would be done. I don't remember how I breathed, but I breathed. I'm, Sharon, I'm wow, with the audience on that one. And my fortune, this is the line that, you know, she does something really sexy and you're like, ooh, I have a chub. And then she does something that breaks your heart. <laughs> and then you get an even bigger chub. <laughs> and my fortune was such that I did nothing with a man which I did not want to do. Mm. Oh. Wow. <laughs> Just brought down the energy of the Consent, whole room. Y'all. Thanks, Sharon. Also, also Thank was you. that that could also be description for what was that like a BuzzFeed article about a dude who sucked a ten inch cock and then went to the ER? Yeah. Bless. I Amateur. love Goals. that dude. Amateur. You know, A plus for effort. We I've already talked a lot about this, but like why must we canonize dick subjectivity around length when there is girth and shape to girth? discuss? Dick shape matters. Dick. You know, it, it does matter, but in the article, no one said that it was 10 inches long and not 10 inches girthy. Oh, I mean, my God. I'm just saying. It did break in. I'm just saying. I it would, did break his throat, literally. I would fully <laughs> run away. I would, like, jump out the window. <laughs> breaking glass. Goodbye. Like heredity? Hereditary, <laughs> No, actually. But, but I would love truly, to see that. Truly, shape is important. It needs, it needs to be ergonomically correct. <laughs> For the, and, for the carpal and tunnel? We all need to start having these conversations. <laughs> the last one, last one. Come in my mouth, he says. You're there already. Denez in the front row says romance. Can anyone name? That would the, be like a very cross clever romance. Ooh. Come in my mouth, he says. Is that clever? Come in my mouth? Is that, you're there already? Is that clever? I mean. It's straightforward. Cock, <laughs> cunt, Satan says softly. The exit is through Satan's mouth. Come in my mouth, he says. You're there already. And the huge hinge begins to close. For the third time today, y'all, I need a cigarette. (laughs) Mm. The bottoms laugh. How the bottoms laugh. (laughs) Did Sharon Olds write that too? I'm not familiar uh, with that one. Thank you so much for playing that game with us. I hope you enjoyed it. Get out your coin purses, bitches. It's time for Penny for your thoughts. You. I might get a little churchy because we in a church. Just FYI. Um, anyway, church in girl. this segment, we source questions from you all and from our wider um, esteemed murder of thoughts, as we like to refer to them. And we, we pick a few questions and we answer, we discuss and answer them. Because we're deeply qualified to answer yeah, yeah, yeah. and to give advice. <laughs> we um, all have I mean, very stable, happy relationships. Um, so you know, they're not all about relationships, Joe. That's true. We get writing questions, too. But these ones are not, these are not writing, writing questions. They're all about <laughs> sex. 
They all have very stable, healthy sex. So the first one is a bit is a bit pointed. It's asked in a very specific way. They say, um, "I've always wondered how much sex do all of you actually have." <laughs> Just and then, dragging us. A follow up. I know. I, actually, is the the true the, the dark the horse there. Um, Word choice, y'all. And then the follow-up question is, if a listener is a huge fan of the podcast um, and wants to have sex with you, do you do it? <laughs> this is not an advice question. <laughs> it's a I'm song. realizing right now. <laughs> I mean, it's almost like a truth or dare, to be honest. <laughs> like, so wait, um, raise your hand if you have had sex with a fan. <laughs> for those of you on radio, four out of four thoughts have raised their hands. Three, um, yeah. So the, we asked the second question first. Um, yeah, yeah, answer yeah. the second question first. Um, it gets into an interesting discussion about like power dynamics. Mm-hmm. So like what 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 like what would make you uneasy about sleeping with a fan? Like what what plays into that? Um, well, in my defense, I did not know they were a fan beforehand. Don't do that. I found out afterwards. Um, <laughs> Don't and then do you that. jumped out the window hereditary yeah, style. I jumped out the window hereditary style. <laughs> Tommy shaped hole in the um, wall. Um I don't I don't I I don't I don't like I, I, I don't like the practice. I think a part of it has to do with the fact that, like, um, unless you get to know somebody, if you only know them from their work, you have mm-hmm. an idea of who they are that's maybe not who they are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's true. I think that's absolutely true. Meanwhile, I, I love it when people adore me. So if they've, like, fully, if they've, like, looked at all my work and they've, like, listened to, like, both seasons of our podcast, I'm like, good. I don't need to, like, bring you up to speed. Yeah, like you just know what I'm like, and it's fine. Like, you know I'm a monster, and you're consenting to it, basically. Yeah, truly, <laughs> truly. Like all of my cards are on the table. Um, so I've done it twice. So not actually that often, but <laughs> the first time it happened, he was just like really hot, and he didn't. <laughs> he didn't need to be a fan. He just happened to be a fan. Like whatever. Um, and. He was very chill about it, so it was, it was just like a normal hookup, except that he was like, I love your show, until <laughs> right when he was about to, like, you know, put it in, he was like, so how often do you have your fans over to show their appreciation? Oh! Which I found to be extremely hot. Ah! <laughs> I did. It was, it was great. I almost invited him to this show because he lives in Seattle. Um, <laughs> the other time it happened, it was a little awkward because the guy started asking me, are you going to talk about me on the show? And I was like, I don't think so. Like, uh, you know, it doesn't happen that often. But but here I did. am. <laughs> you are right now. <laughs> but that was different, too, because I knew him before the show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then he just became a fan of it. But, yeah. like, I knew him before. Mm. So, in general, like, I would say it's not the best idea. But, you know... <laughs> Mistakes happen. Exceptions happen. What are you going to do? You don't believe in rules. I anyway. don't believe in rules. <laughs> Pretty much ever, but um, yeah. I have definitely had, I've had guys like exit and they're like, I don't want to be content on your podcast. And I'm yeah, like, you know sure. what? That's fair because I'm going to turn you into content on my podcast. And I have definitely found myself being like on Grinder and being like, mm, do I want to have sex tonight? And then I'm like, well, I have to make stories for the show. <laughs> <laughs> No. <laughs> and then I'm like, oh well, my grind off my grinder extra is like a write-off on my taxes, right? <laughs> my fleet is a write-off on my taxes, it right? It should be. Yeah, I 
mean, it's about your brand. I mean... Should we, answer the, should we answer the first question, which is how much sex do you actually have? Yeah. Uh, I love this question. None of your business. No. <laughs> <laughs> Tommy. I will answer this question lovingly. I like to refer to myself as a sexual camel. I have sex once every eight months or so, and I like store that sexual energy in my hump. Yeah, her humps. And Fran, so Fran is obsessed with iCal invites and does them for literally everything. Including. And if for two or three days he doesn't send us an iCal invite, we know what's happening. <laughs> because I'm sending them to my uh, hookups. Yeah. Yes. Um, and, Actually, and you're too distracted. Um, Dennis. You know, it really varies. I go through periods where I might be having a lot of sex if I'm seeing someone or if I'm doing a lot of dating. And then I go through periods where I'm basically a nun. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, so it's just it's just all over the place. It kind of like in any grouping of six months, if you ask me, it's going to be a different answer. Mm. Right now, we're in a, a quiet-ish phase. The quiet place. I've deleted all the apps. It's really liberating and great. But um, and I'm meeting people in person, so it's not completely dry. Imagine that. It's Teeps. yeah. Oh, uh, none of your business. <laughs> <laughs> I, None I do yet. think one thing that's important to note about the show is that, you know, if you condense like 35 years of sexual history into like a podcast show, it seems like we're fucking all the time. But we're just like normal humans with jobs. Except, except, except Joe actually is fucking all yeah, the time. Yeah, I was like, Joe. <sighs> like twice yeah. today. I'm so sorry, everybody. Yeah, it's, it's. <laughs> <laughs> No, just once. Just she once. deserves an Olympic medal. Oh, my God. Here's a... No, you can stop. <laughs> We're going to... I'm going to cut this off right here. I have a real advice question. Um, does my inability to bottom come from internalized homophobia? Woo! At first glance, I'm, I want to say yes, but I think if you think more deeply about that, it's, it's very complicated. Yeah. Um, I feel like I end up dating and sleeping with a lot of men who are very clear about the fact that they don't want anything anywhere near their ass ever. <laughs> and the way in which they communicate that sometimes indicates a little bit of internalized homophobia. So it's all about the context. It's, it's about, all, you're saying it's about like how they present it. So if they're like yeah. bottom shaming, yeah. that's internalized homophobia. But I don't think that like everyone who just tops is, is, is necessarily experiencing right. that. Well, There's there so are, many reasons. Exactly. There, there are a bunch of different reasons why someone would not want something in their butt. Number one, it's gross. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's gross, everything. And none of you yeah. want to own up to it, but I will say it, it's <laughs> gross. Thank you. And shit's always everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> that is, that is not true. Emergency room. <laughs> with fissures. On there the are head. all kinds of things <laughs> you can do to take care of that. <laughs> Um, but in actuality, I mean, there's a whole range. I mean, there are people that have, where their first, their first sexual experience might not have been consensual, or they had, like, a traumatic experience with in-bottoming, mm-hmm. that pre- that which in, they present that to you, and you say, that is totally okay. Like, yeah. you don't want them to feel uncomfortable in that moment. Or, like, mm-hmm. some, sometimes it's traumatic, sometimes it's just uncomfortable. Like, sometimes it was a dude, and then, you know, you accidentally left a little brown elf shoe on his sheets, and then that fucked you up for, like, a little while afterwards. Yeah. Not like I'm... Not from personal experience. I'm just saying hypothetically. You know, I'm a writer. I can come up with situations. You're a writer. This is the persona poem. I'm. <laughs> I'm shaking my head to clarify that not all of us leave a little brown mark on the sheets. <laughs> Dennis is always clean as a whistle, despite the fact that they eat exclusively mac, mac and, and cheese. cheese. Just mac and cheese. I've had it twice this week. I, listen, it's a God-given gift. <laughs> We're in a church. I'm lifting him up. But on that, it's fine. 
Thank you, Jesus. <laughs> you got it right. We we are literally going to be smitten, smote. What is the past? Smited, smited, smited. I'm a poet. Another thing that we always say on the show is that you know. It's talking about tops and bottoms and versing and like foreclosing on people's identities with these yeah. very funny platitudes makes an amazing punchline. However, if you have worn that label for a very long time and have not bothered to re-examine it or think about what it is you prefer actually yeah. do not prefer, I think there are a lot of people that are locked into that label in a way that might not necessarily be what they actually want deep inside. Yeah. That doesn't mean that you can't have a preference, True. but I think that there's, it's always, there's always room to re-examine what your preferences are. Or like what you're willing to do. Like you might like something but really like someone. Mm-hmm. And so open up your life to, like, trying something that's not your favorite in yeah. a way that's trusting mm-hmm. where, like, if you try it and then you're like, no, 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 that, like, it can stop, right? But I do think I've, I've learned as I've gotten older that you can really like someone but also be fundamentally sexually incompatible with them. Yeah. That that's so is true. So and it's heartbreaking. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But it happens. And so I think that the more honest we are with, like, our absolute yeses and absolute noes and musts and I will not, like, from the get is a really actually healthy conversation to yeah. have. Yeah. I mean, my only... Yes, give it up. One yes. person clap. Yes, clap. One person clap. <laughs> clap. Um, I guess, like, my only question to the person who wrote the question is, why did they immediately go to internalized homophobia? Yeah. Mm-hmm. That, that's, that would be my question. That would, that's what I would ask of that person. If they were sitting right here. So... For our thought process today, in typical thoughty fashion, we are going to wade into some murky waters. Mm. Who owns whose stories? How do we begin to tell the, to tell stories across difference? Can we even do so successfully? And if so, what defines that success? Barry Jenkins, a straight man, directed Moonlight, one of the greatest queer stories in cinema. Ryan Murphy, a cis white man, conceived Pose, the most inclusive cast of trans people of color in the history of broadcast television, which many love. If Hanya Yanagihara, a straight Hawaiian woman, can write A Little Life, which is a story about black queer men and is also literally every gay's favorite book. Not mine. Then how did she... And not Fran's. I... We'll get to that. (laughs) (laughs) Then how did she do it? Um, A thought amendment, if you will. Um, We are not experts. We lovingly and messily want to start to have this conversation, not just for y'all, but so for our own praxis, and hopefully we can devise some tools um, to try and start how to write and tell those stories across difference in a way that won't harm people and might even be a good story. So y'all know and understand... That Carly, that Scarlett Johansson. <laughs> got Carly Rae Jepsen on the mind. No, no. Carly Sorry, is literally Carly always on, on his mind. Y'all know, understand that Scarlett Johansson should not get to play a trans man on screen. But do you all understand the mechanics of why? Let's start there. Yeah, I think a part of it has to do with the fact that we're not critiquing craft or character or I mean it's acting so necessarily people become other people we're not saying you can't become another person Um, that's what underlies that entire profession right getting into character being somebody different learning to comport your body differently I think ultimately what we're talking about with uh, Scarlett Johansson playing a trans man is the fact that like Scarlett Johansson can be a trans man and Scarlett Johansson can be Black Widow You know what I mean? The only people, like, when a trans person goes out for a role, usually they're only ever able, 
are considered for trans roles. Mm -hmm. So you're taking that away from a person when that's their only source of bread for, for real, you know? Yeah. Yeah. This message comes from iHeartRadio sponsor, Mercury Insurance. If you're looking to save some money, you should really think about getting a quote from Mercury because Californians save an average of $677 with Mercury. It's quick and easy, and in just a few minutes, you might find you could save a lot of money on your auto and home insurance. Plus, Mercury was named one of America's best insurance companies by Insure.com four years in a row. Low rates, big discounts, great insurance. Go to mercuryinsurance.com today to get a quote. It's crazy how much we have to pay for outdated, impersonal health care, and even crazier that we all just accept it. It's time to face facts. Healthcare is backwards. Luckily, there's Forward, a new approach to primary care that's surprisingly personal and refreshingly straightforward. Forward never makes you feel like just another patient. Backed by top-rated doctors and the latest tech, Forward gives you access to personalized care whenever you need it. Using in-depth genetic analysis and real-time blood work, Forward's top-rated doctors provide you with in-depth insights to better understand your genetics, mental, and physical health. They then create custom, easy-to-understand plans to help guide you to achieving long-term health. With Forward, you get unlimited in-person visits with your doctor and access to care anytime via the Forward app, all for one flat monthly fee. It's time to stop accepting backwards health care and start moving your health forward. Visit GoForward.com today to learn more. That's GoForward.com. Look, staying healthy isn't easy. Watching your diet, hitting the gym, avoiding stress. But a good night's rest helps boost your overall health and wellness. And it couldn't be easier. The new Sleep Number 360 Smart Bed is the only bed that effortlessly adjusts and responds to both of you. The result? You wake up ready for anything. Proven quality sleep is life-changing sleep. Save up to $1,200 on select Sleep Number 360 Smart Beds and adjustable bases, plus special financing only for a limited time. Special financing subject to credit approval. Minimum monthly payments required. See store for details. I'm Allie Wentworth, mom, wife, actress, writer, comedian, and also the host of Go Ask Allie, the podcast that dissects the craziness of modern life. He said, I never thought anybody could be this irreplaceable. And I started crying and he started crying. And that, that was it. Yes, it's terrible and all this traveling and it just completely disrupts our lives, but this is what we got. Go Ask Allie is a podcast where you can learn how to grow all the pivotal relationships in your life. We are taking ukulele lessons on Zoom and we suck. We're never forming I, a band. By the way, I assumed that. I didn't okay, want to I say did. anything. I, I assumed right. you sucked until you told me otherwise. There will be ruptures in any intimate loving relationship. And the question is, how do you repair? New episodes drop every Thursday, and there's also a bunch already waiting for your binging pleasure. You owe me a present. Yeah, I know. Listen to Go Ask Alley on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And Lots it's like, of, until, and until, like, like until a trans woman can go in and be considered for Black Widow, you know, or any other role, um, that you, maybe you can't play that character. Yeah, but... but also, ScarJo, like, come on. We've been through this before. You already think you're an Asian woman. And, like, I that truly cannot yeah. get through it. Yeah. Oh, no. I, we, oh. Yes, 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 yes she oh, did. Yes. yes, yes, she did. She uh, did. Literally today, which is amazing. Literally, yeah, I literally texted the group chat at, like, 11, being like, guys. you like, did you hear? Ding did dong. Did you hear? Well, well I, I, I think I actually wrote, well, well, well. <laughs> 
Because we know why this happened. But just, and, and we're not spending a ton of time on this, but I just also think it's really important to know because her first response was like, oh, ask like the agents of Hillary Swank and Felicity Huffman and Jeffrey Tambor and Eddie Redmayne. I and Eddie Redmayne. And I think that um, to some extent there's some legitimacy, legitimacy to that. But I also think that we're in a moment where the media landscape is changing and a lot of things are happening that weren't possible. 15, whenever Boys Don't Cry came out, which was a while ago, <laughs> no it was idea. Like, what, 15 years ago, I think, maybe? Something like that. Like things are changing. And so where that really might not have been possible for a trans actor at that time to play that role it could happen now. Like, there's no reason why it couldn't be done. And so that's another thing for someone like her to think about where 15 years ago, like, she might have only been applauded for taking this role, but at this point, it just, it's a little bit of an antiquated thing done. to do. Yeah. Absolutely. And uh, I guess the follow-up question for that is, what are some examples of stories told across difference that are maybe a little more complicated than this one? Like, this one, it's like, ScarJo, we know this is wrong, but what are some ones where it's just like... I don't know about that. Well, okay. I haven't talked about this in a while, but let's talk about the help. Oh my God. Do we remember that novel? (laughs) Do we remember that movie? (laughs) I was not happy that that was the movie that, um, well, Viola didn't win her Oscar on that one, but she got the nomination, but Octavia won. Anyway, um, this is the thing. So... That writer, Catherine Stockett, spent a lot of time, I believe, trying to understand um, and employ AAVE, or African American Vernacular English, as I like to refer to it. (laughs) And um, when you got to, if you read it, when you got, first of all, the novel was told all in first person. And then when you got to the chapters that were written in the points of view of the black female characters who were all maids at this time, um, she employed African-American vernacular English to um, a rather middling level of success, I, I would say, um, first of all. And I just remember reading, and this was a while ago, this was like back when I was first beginning to like think about being a writer and like take some time and maybe, I was like, maybe I want to apply for MFA programs. So this was like, I don't know, maybe t- uh, nine or ten years ago. And I just remember thinking, I feel like this isn't for you. Like there's no specific rule right or law that you can't use this but i don't feel like this language is for you even in the portrayal of this character i think there are less damaging ways to tell the story um that you're telling but i also have to recognize that there are a lot of people who read that book who felt very seen by it who felt like it really did a lot of amazing work so i i can appreciate that reading of it but i just was like, like this wasn't like this the wasn't most done the, right the way. most famous line in the book. Like it's just it's just like you is kind, you is smart, you is important. Like I think there's a lot of power to the fact that that became the most famous line in that book and from that movie. Um, I do. I just I think that's really. I don't know. I think it's really telling. I'm not anyway. I'm not a huge fan. I'm sure she's <laughs> a lovely person. Is she? <laughs> I don't know. Um, <laughs> I, you know, you just, you just say that to, like, be polite. Like, I'm sure she's lovely. 
you know. So I feel like she could have done. She could have done. Uh, with a little more um, research. As Tommy like said, or we talked about this earlier, do you read more than you write? What are your research materials? How are you diving in? What is the context of this, of this environment and do you understand it? Mm. Um, and I think that there are a lot of ways wherein any, any story just needs more research behind it. Yeah, and speaking on that point, there was a movie that came out not too long ago, I think maybe 2016, 2015, called Wind River. And it took place on um, an Indian reservation, and it was written by a man named uh, Tyler Sheridan, who's a white guy, and it was about... I mean, the inciting incident of the movie was the murder of an indigenous woman on indigenous lands. And, like, he was talking about the fact that, like, he wanted to... um, uh, uh, the, The imperative behind making that film was he wanted other people to know this epic of missing and murdered indigenous women on indigenous lands. And so I feel complicated about this movie, first of all, because, like, I mean, apparently in my research of this person, like, he spent a lot of time in Indian country, and uh, he spent a lot of time on, like, Pine Ridge and some other places, and it was there that some people were like, look, you have this pipeline to Hollywood. Um, Nobody cares about our stories. Like, you... But, like, the thing is, like, what he did with that knowledge, like, he didn't empower an indigenous person to tell that story. He did this sort of white savior complex, which was like, oh, I'm gonna tell this story now, which is why there's, like, a whiff of that in the film. Like, the main Mm -hmm. characters are both white, and they come in to fix a situation. Um, But, like... It also, like, did, I mean, it employed a lot of indigenous actors. It gave us, I, I mean, okay, so there's this man on that movie called Martin Senesmeyer, and he is, like, a four-course meal. Like, he is so fucking fine. <laughs> Woo! Um, How tall is he, Tommy? He's only 5'10". But what? Yeah, but the thing is, when I'm Short on my knees, you. a lot of people are taller than me. <laughs> <laughs> um, and yes, and that like I don't. But the thing is, the other thing that I'm conflicted about is like, okay, right. So he wanted to shed light on this um, epidemic in um, in the Americas, but you know, but then it's like, well, if he gave that opportunity to an indigenous person to tell, it's like, well, maybe they don't want to be re-traumatized by that thing, right. or you know. So it's like it gets into that. So why, again, like, why did you decide it was you who needed to tell this story? Mm. Mm-hmm. That's what I'm. That's what I would mm-hmm. ask him. That's what I'd be curious and, about. And I think anybody who ventures out to tell a story across difference should ask themselves the question: Why am I writing this? Who am I writing it for? Is it my lived lived experience? What dog do I have in this fight? Mm-hmm. Am I profiting off of this? Mm. I think is a very important question. And Joe, you were t- we were talking about this earlier. It's a catch mm-hmm. twenty two. If you only write about if you're a white person and you only write about white people, people are going to be like erasure. And if you try to write about marginalized groups, all of a sudden you're problematic. And mm-hmm. there, I we understand that it's like a tricky place to be in. However, when you venture into telling stories across difference, you have opted to do the more difficult thing. If you are not prepared to do the more difficult thing, then you have to, then why are you writing it? Uh, Yeah, I have a thing to say and then a question for the group that I think could be extended to the audience. And my thing to say is that I think uh, as a white person in this conversation, I hear a lot of people, like, I'm a poor white faggot, so, like, I have poor white faggot shit to write about, and that's, like, kind of interesting, and, and, you know, that's, like, an identity that I care very deeply about. But I hear a lot of people from class differences and, um, like, you know, a cis, straight, upper middle class white man say, well, but like my whole life was comfortable. Like, I don't, I don't want to just keep writing these stories about these people who are comfortable. And like, I actually think like, 
it is white supremacy that says that writing about whiteness does not mean you're writing about race, right? Mm-hmm. And it is white supremacy that says that, like, your story is a story and other people's stories are race stories. So you come yeah. from comfort. Yeah. On, yeah. on whose back was that comfort won? Mm. At whose cost was it earned? Who did you not see and why? Who was ta- if you were a man, who was taking care of you and cooking you food? Where is your comfort? Whose bodies is that on the back of? And what that means is instead of telling other people's stories that don't implicate you, you implicate your motherfucking self mm. in the violence. Yes. Right? So that's, that's thing one. And it's super important. Thing two is a craft question, and that's how the fuck we do this. Mm. And I think one of the things that I'm getting from Dennis uh, and from Tommy is um, it is really fucking hard to write down a vector of power. So if I'm cis and writing about a trans person, or if I'm white and writing about people of color, or if I'm man and writing about a woman, in the first person. Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I have a, my question is... And I'm looking at Alex Chi because I'm thinking of people who have done this well. And Queen mm-hmm. of the Night is in the first person written by a man uh, owning a, a, you know, a woman's persona. And I think it's an incredibly book, uh, incredible book. I don't think anyone has said it's problematic, right? But, like, can you ever do it? And if you can, how do you do it well? Mm. I think, I think it's a, it has a lot to do with the hours that you've clocked. Because Alex mm. Chi took one jillion years to write that book. <laughs> There was some research. (laughs) Some research went involved, some travel. Um, But I mean, other. She did the work. I think that's one thing. And I also, I think of Hanya Yanagihara a lot in in this discussion. Mm. Hanya Yanagihara also took one jillion years to write that book and also clocked the motherfucking hours. Mm. If you. Hanya has like studied queer people. It takes such an investment in the culture of queer people. If you go to her Instagram, it's the gayest shit you've ever seen. <laughs> you go inside her apartment, there's like sh- there's gay art, there's gay photographs hung everywhere, and she will be able to explain to you the source material behind that. Mm-hmm. I was working in the cover art department at Random House when that book was going through, and um, it, there was a lot of back and forth on how, what the cover could be. And she was like, "Here, let me help you," and she sent us like. 50, 60 pages of like handwritten notes that she had written just in the process of writing this book, being like, if this helps you, these are images that speak out to me, like pieces of queer art, pieces of like um, passages mm-hmm. from queer stories. She had she take, took such an investment because she cared about it. And that comes a lot to down to the conversation of mm. obligation versus conviction. Because mm-hmm. if you are writing mm-hmm. a story because you feel obligated to write that story, it's not going to be a very good story. (laughs) (laughs) Conviction makes good art. Obligation does not make good art. Obligation makes a great donation to an organization. (laughs) Obligation makes a great body in a protest. protest. Mm -hmm. Obligation makes a great call to my senator. Obligation does not make good art. Okay. Yeah. Um, conviction, where it comes from, is a conversation that you and only you can have with yourself about what it is you are setting out to do. It comes yeah. down to that question. I well, I I totally one hundred percent agree with that, and I also think well. First, to be fair, I always thought that Hanya was part of the community because she went to Smith. <laughs> <laughs> And, and also her book. 
Um, <laughs> and, <laughs> and also. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think it's really telling, just in terms of, like, everything that Fran is saying, I think it's really telling about the fact that, like, like we don't really know, or we didn't know, or now we know, or whatever. And it just, it doesn't really affect the way that we read the book. And this is where I also think it's important. Um, I'm, I'm bookmarking this for a moment, because I also think that how we turn to the books that we're looking at is really important. But I do want to say... One of my favorite authors I felt did wrote across difference really well. And so I'm going to talk about that for a minute. I'm a huge fan of the writer Elizabeth Strout. I'm sure some of you know her of Olive Kittredge and a lot of amazing books. And she's, she's a white woman from Maine who comes from a very long lineage of white people from Maine. And <laughs> Maine, I believe, uh, yes. statistically, is like the whitest state in the union. Or at least it was at some point. Anyway, her... Uh, yes. And a- Alex, Alex would know. From Alex Maine. would know. From Maine. Um, from Maine. So... Um, Elizabeth Strout's fourth book was a novel called The Bird Displays, and it was published in 2013. And it was pretty extraordinary because it took a real live event that actually happened um, and fictionalized it and changed a, a few of the circumstances. And basically, um, in the novel, a teenage boy who's white um, actually commits a hate crime. He takes a frozen pig's head and throws it into a mosque in Maine, and this is a, a, I mean, this is a big deal anyway, but in Maine, um, in the last maybe 15, 20 years, there's been a huge increase in Somali immigrants, the Somali immigrant population, and um, then a Muslim population as well, and so this had actually happened in a small town in Maine in, like, maybe 2005, 2006, and so she kind of wrote about it and fictionalized it into this novel, and I thought that um, what was so extraordinary was that she had um, a character who was a community leader in the Muslim community And she went into his point of view in the third person um, at a number of moments in the novel. And I thought that she did an incredible job of it. I remember reading it then and thinking that. And I I recently reread it. And I think that now as well. And you can kind of tell in the reading that, first of all, she talks about the fact that this was um, one of the longest novels that it took her to write. I think it took her closer to 10 years um, Mm -hmm. to write it. She um, deeply invested herself in the Muslim and Somali um, immigrant population in like all over the state of Maine and it took years but she made these connections with people they started inviting her into into their homes they started inviting her to services and she really began to meet people in the community and grow a deep investment um, in that community and even now she's she's several books beyond this book but she will sometimes talk a little bit about some of the things that she's doing um, to support that community in Maine and that's an example of someone who um really like kind of used their platform and used their position to advance a narrative in a way that um, I think really empowers and uplifts the story. Mm. And that, yeah. And that comes to a point about like who that the question of who are your lateral collaborator collaborators in this process? Who are you immediately standing by? I brought up Pose and I brought up Moonlight because those are very obvious examples. Moonlight, Barry Jenkins worked with Um. the, the playwright who is gay. They're both queer. They're, they're, one of them is queer. They're both black men. They Terrell work Alvin together McCraney. to create... What was that? Terrell Alvin McCraney. Yeah, thank you. Yes. Um, to work together to make a really beautiful story. Um, Pose has cast the largest trans, the trans cast of color, over 100, 120, 140 trans people, which is like the new precedent for casting trans people in broadcast. It's like when Rihanna came out with Fenty and she's like, yeah, I got... 45 shades or whatever. And all the makeup companies were like, well, I have 35. And it's like, well... Get more. Janet Mott got 140 trans people. So um, that's, that's like right. amazing. But um, re- regardless of what Ryan Murphy's um, 
place was in that whole process, he reached out to Janet Mock and Our Lady J to cast this thing, to write whole episodes, to direct episodes, to be their lateral collaborator, collaborators, not their boss, not the person who they are reporting to, but to like all be sitting in the room and to make the thing. Mm-hmm. I wanted to make one point, and, and this kind of, kind of piggybacks off of this and, and about the discussion um, about A Little Life. And I'm, I'm reading a book right now. I haven't finished it yet, so I can't speak to what, it, what everything it's going to be, but I'm reading that um, The Great Believers, um, the Rebecca uh, Mackay book, and a part of it takes place in 1985 with a group of gay men in Chicago. And um, I, I haven't found a moment yet where I was like, uh, I don't... I think the reason I haven't had any cause to think of it as being problematic yet, again, I haven't, like, uh, finished it, um, but to, I feel for the people in the story. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm sad for them, and I want to protect them, and I believe what they say, and that, I think, it just means that you wrote characters, not rhetorical devices, Woo! you know? Truly. And, and I think... You know, and I talk to Morgan Parker about this a lot. We talk about how, like, you know, the noble savage and the magical Negro as being vehicles for white epiphany or some mm-hmm. other kind of, like... And because of, you know, whiteness as having, as having access to everything, thinks it can mm. be everything, you know? Mm-hmm. Or that, but that's not just white, but that's, like, power, you know? Power, like, yeah. 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 And ask yourself, are you writing a story or are you writing a fable? Uh, a story that teaches a lesson on racism, um, which is not necessarily how we want our characters to function. Um, But yeah, this... Yeah, yeah. I I think that Dennis's point about Elizabeth Stroud actually, like... If you, I think we we all get this. We all feel colonialism. We feel we can you can put your finger on the pulse of it. So it doesn't matter how well you do the story if you then do the story and take that and go and that makes your career like that's mm-hmm. that's bad, right? So like the notion that you stay in a community and like keep giving to that community even after you've you know sort of extracted a story from them that you're profiting on is like super important. Like that and that gets to the question of like. What, what are your actual stakes? Like, where yes. are you embedded? Like, who are you talking to? Who are your people? Like, are these really your people? Or do you just see them and think of a good story? Mm-hmm. You know? Mm-hmm. And in that also, if you are... There's a, there's a dangerous thing that happens when, like, projects like ScarJo or whatever get greenlit in groupthink mentality. Like, who were the yay-sayers that brought you to this point? Were they across difference in any way? Yeah. Probably not. Like, yeah, yeah, when yeah, they sure. put Zayn Malik and Gigi Hadid on the cover of Vogue and they were like, the new gender-fluid icons. There were no gender-fluid people who consulted on that project, okay? Yeah, no. um, but there was um, an art... So if anybody's hasn't heard, there was an article written by Jesse Siegel um, that was on the cover of The Atlantic that greatly pathologized trans people um, and basically t- made a case for detransitioning and why children shouldn't be trans, kind of, um, in a reporterly journalistic way. Um, a friend of the podcast, Taryn Walker, did a, an amazing story-reported piece about this Google listserv that had hundred, 200 like award-winning journalists that all get in cahoots together and talk about the stories that they're working on. There were tons and tons and tons of threads about this trans story and writers talking to Jesse, who were not trans, that said, this is great. I'm so glad you're doing this. You're the best reporter on the beat. Mm -hmm. And you have to read this story. Like, we'll put it in the show notes, whatever. But there were just comment by comment by comment by comment because he had tons and tons of yaysayers in his life to bring him to that green light. When you are working on that project, re-examine your group. And they they said that the trans 
backlash was groupthink. And this is what we were talking about before yeah. the show. Right. And, and w- the thing that um, we were talking about before the show was that groupthink works through power, right? And cis-heteropatriarchal white supremacist groupthink is just culture. Mm-hmm. So when, when all of the people on that list <laughs> were engaging in groupthink but are in the dominant culture and they are yeah. receiving criticism... And then gaslighting to say that that criticism, which is anti-imperial and anti-cis-heteropatriarchal white supremacist, is the groupthink. So I think it's like, as a writer who comes from a position of power, remembering, you know, to, to go real queer theory, the matrices of power that you exist in and how that informs your ideology and how that informs who you think about as being a part of culture and, and not. And if you're a person looking to write across difference, like, seek out people to consult on the project. If you do not have a single friend across difference, I'm worried for you. However, true. I know it's that it's a real thing. You can still reach out to people laterally and ask them if they would wish or want to help you with this thing. And if they say mm-hmm. no, you can't be hurt, you can't <laughs> be mad, and you cannot react in a way that would be volatile or harm someone. You have to find because way. it's not their responsibility. However, mm-hmm. there are really nice people that will do it, and also, you can pay them. <laughs> um, Compensation is or, real, y'all. Or... You can offer a trade or something. I mean, like, but I, another example I give is, if anybody saw Una Mujer Fantastica, which is an amazing Chilean film about a trans woman, a lot of people don't know that the trans woman who plays the trans woman, wow, um, in that movie, um, mm-hmm. was consulting on the project for a full year with the screenwriter before they went into yep. the project. And then yep. finally the screenwriter was like, will you please be the character. Um, So that is like a a lateral collaboration, paid compensation to create what was a fucking beautiful movie. Mm -hmm. It was so good. I Just really quick, I have two points because I know we have to move on to our next segment. But one, um, we were talking about this yesterday when we were meeting about this and it, when this is all a little bit confusing and kind of hard to maybe grasp, if you think about like simplifying and getting more specific with the language within which you're thinking about this, it can be really helpful. So taking all of this and actually thinking about power and actually thinking about harm. Like if you kind of interchange those two words into your thinking about these kinds of issues when you're writing, sometimes it helps clarify things and just makes it a little, a little bit easier to understand. And the other thing that I want to say really quickly is that we're talking about this as writers, like we're writers, you guys are writers, but it's also important to have these conversations as readers. And it's important to think about bringing these conversations, these questions, this context to the books that we are consuming as readers, even sometimes when perhaps the author is not thinking about them themselves. And um, every... In my, in my opinion, um, based on like, what I think about critical race theory and all of these things, any book written in America, point blank period, about Americans is about race. Even if it's about white people not talking about race in the suburbs of Connecticut or wherever, that's a novel that's about race. And that's a conversation that as a reader is worth having as you're reading it and if you're interacting with the author or if you're interacting with p- other readers. And as a reader, I, I mean, we've been talking to marginalized people and people not in power this whole time. And I, I or sorry, we've been talking to people in power this whole time. And I, I want to kind of quickly re- reshift and like I want to you know if all the like straight white men could just like plug their ears for the second I'm just going to like talk to my others real quick um, <laughs> uh, if 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 people of color if or marginalized people want to critique representation if they want to critique representation at, that has made its way into the mainstream 
I do think it's our responsibility to make sophisticated critiques about that representation without using essentialism. So like, mm -hmm. it's easy to say, you're white, you cannot tell that story, even though a lot of the times that is the case. Um, but it, it, to say, to, to complicate it um, is, I think, a lot of what we should be doing when we engage in cultural criticism, and to not use sophistication is like an unhealthy fundamentalism that is not dissimilar to the of things that, that are oppressing us in the very first place. That we have to engage with this material in a way that is smart. Or just choose not to engage with this, engage with it because sometimes it sucks. Sometimes. Oof. Um, yeah. So to, to re, I think to recap, just in case anyone has their notepad out, one, you ask, is this, why are you writing this story? Is this your lived experience? What is your dog in this fight? Are you profiting? Two, do you read more than you write? Do you understand the context of the environment that you are want, looking to write? Um, what does your research look like? Three, who are you meeting with? Who are your lateral collaborators? Are you, were, are you engaging in what could be dangerous groupthink with the people that are saying yes in your life? Um, and four, what is the potential harm? Thank yeah. you all so much for yeah. being here with us through this mess. Um, I don't know how you feel, but I'm full, but like I could put one more thing inside of me. <laughs> Dennis knows how I feel. <laughs> so we're going to cap off the night with our dessert segment. Mm. Um, there, okay, so this is really precious and very inside jokey, but we're just, we're just going to indulge. It's um, adorable. There, in, in early seasons of the podcast, you may have heard a, um, a, uh, a rumor that I did not know who Sade was when I met Tommy. Yeah, Fran didn't know who Sade was. Okay. Is it a rumor when it's a fact? I'm like, like 40 Wait. years younger than you, and... <laughs> oh! And fighting words. I grew up in a cultural vacuum. Like I didn't have like pop culture in my childhood. Like I, I literally just watched um, Clueless for the first time last week. Like I didn't know Victoria Beckham was a Spice Girl. Like that is okay, true, actually. This is this is, it's really bad. So that like, that's why I didn't know who Sade um. was. But because we talk about Sade on the podcast so much, um, we get a lot of emails, texts, DMs, whatever. We have been getting an an outpouring of Numerous. people who don't know who Sade is still. And I want to just, we, we want to read some of these. Anyways, yes, hello, food for thought. I have a ridiculous question. I was listening to episode one, for two, one or two, and I cannot remember. Y'all talk about a singer called Sade, spelled S-H-A-W, space, D-A-Y. <laughs> Epic. <laughs> I know, we're I, laughing off the pain. I know. <laughs> They're like, I, tr I tried Googling it. Can you point me in the right direction? <laughs> oh. Uh. Oh. Did we help them out? Did we, did we send no. them out? We're helping them out now. No, I think no, I, I, I actually I do respond to every one of those. I go in and respond. I respond to I'm okay. I, I feel like as the white person on the panel, that's what you should do. Um, <laughs> Frank. Frankly, that's your job. But also, like, I'm good with educating the babies. Yes, I Someone yeah, has yeah. to tell them. We do. There was another one that was like, uh, I'm writing because I do not know what 
what the fuck again Sean Day is how, how is it how is it spelled it's first it's spelled Sean S H A W N D A Y then it's spelled Sean S H A U G H N space D E A then they uh, say Sean Day as one word, and then they say shoddy? Shoddy. Ah! shoddy. They tried all their options, and they still ain't get it right. Mm-mm. Oh, no. And I'm just like, have messy. We, I feel like I failed somehow because, like, it's like, how? Uh, also, just kid, have you never fallen in love before? Do you know what love is? She is our goddess of love, love deluxe. Like, uh, love is stronger than pride. Like, your love is king. Like, she raised you. How she can, raised you. Soldier of love. How can you have sex without her? I actually don't know. <laughs> um, I so uh, for the people listening at home who are like, fuck, I don't know who Shadé is. Still don't is. know. <laughs> Google S A D E. Start Search with Diamond Life, <laughs> then do Promise and listen to Is It a Crime? <laughs> then listen to her entire discography. Yeah. No ordinary and love. And realize yeah. that you have not been having sex the right way this entire no. time. <laughs> no. And now you're a bottom. <laughs> Oh my God! Did Sade make me a bottom? <laughs> yes, Dennis. Yes. Sade made Dennis a bottom. <laughs> I'm not mad at it. The origin story. I always story. thought it was Tina Turner <laughs> in her legs, but. Uh, this episode of Food for Thought was made possible by the generous, unequivocal support of Rose and the Tin House Summer Workshop. Yeah. Woo! Yes. We came home this week. <laughs> um, this place is our home. This is where we came up. This is like the late nights we spent out of this outside the student union with Alex Chi talking about butt plugs and drink rosé. They were truly the prehistoric episodes of this <laughs> That's show. That's true. That's true. So thank you so much, Tin House, for having us back and for making this episode possible. Our producer is the big, thick Alexandra yeah. De Palma. <laughs> the, 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 <laughs> you can, the thickening is you can, real. <laughs> you can listen to Food for Thought on Apple Podcasts or wherever you download golden audio goodness. Subscribe, rate, and review us five stars on iTunes so we keep Dennis in jumpsuits and jewels. <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise, it's homophobic. Did you see the tiara? Uh-huh. Find us on Facebook and Twitter as Food for Thought Pod. On Instagram as Gay Sluts Who Read. Sign up for our newsletter for episode insights, reading lists, and extra delectable content at foodforthoughtpodcast.com. And finally, send your thoughts, questions, concerns, and dick pics to thoughts at foodforthoughtpodcast.com. As always, that's food, the number four, and thought spelled how... T-H-O-T. Thank you for listening. Thank you so much. Thank you. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello 
Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 